For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Tuesday, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating today? It's National Compliment Day. And I'd like to offer a compliment to our guest, Susan Rogers, before she even comes on. She has filled my head with so much. There's so much to dissect in her incredible book, This Is What It Sounds Like. And we're going to cover so much about her career, this incredible book, and so much. As you all know, all this month, we've been celebrating National Book Blitz Month. We're celebrating books, authors, and today we're celebrating music, the music that courses through our veins. And I am so excited that she's here today. But before I bring her on, I'd just like to give you a little sampling of some of the authors that we've had on this show since we first started doing this at the beginning of COVID. Here they are. This is just the authors and their books. Happy Tuesday, Susan. How are you? I'm good. Happy Tuesday to you too, Richard. And thank you for having me on your show. I am so thrilled that you're here. And normally I begin my shows by asking who or what are you celebrating today? But instead of asking that, before we came on today, I'd like to ask you, what music did you listen to today? Oh, uh, I was preparing for my taxes, so I needed something with no lyrics in it. So I, I put on some Ahmad Jamal. I listened to a lot of Ahmad Jamal. And then after that, I had a go at Artie Shaw. I listened to some Artie Shaw. And I have to say, the Artie Shaw band, not as impressive as other bands from that same era. I, I, I could hear some, there were some moments that pulled me away from my the spreadsheets that I was looking at that made me think, you know, that band could have kicked in a little bit harder. So once you're a record producer, you're always a record producer. <laughs> I think he was too involved with Betty Grable to be thinking. He probably was. <laughs> I got the sense he was distracted. I got that Yes, sense. that's very interesting that you say that. Um, you know, this book is so incredible. I, I was thinking today, I just pulled a few of the albums. I mean, anyone who knows me, uh, and, you know, my history, I mean, and this will, you're going to say this guy, you, you, this is going to surprise you. I mean, this is one of my favorite albums, oh, Carol yes. Channing in concert. I also have her Hello, Dolly. And yes, I do still listen to albums on vinyl. Great. John Davidson, another Carol showgirl. Mm. And then I'm going to tell you the first album that my mother ever bought for me oh, when I was a kid. And this may explain everything you need to know about me, Susan. But the very first album that I ever received, and this is it. I oh, still have it. The best of Judy Garland. <laughs> she was ridiculously great. Just ridiculous. You hear um, her capacity to just take her heart and just yank it out and put it right there into that microphone was pretty unparalleled. Not many others could touch her for that ability. Extraordinary, extraordinary. Absolutely. Now, we're going to talk about the trajectory of your life leading up to this book, first of all. 
I know that you grew up in Southern California, uh, but uh, did you live in proximity to the music industry or uh, where did it all begin for you? Did you grow up in a household uh, where music was the norm rather than the exception? No, um, music, music was there. It was always there on the radio, you know, in Southern California. I grew up in Anaheim and actually literally right next door to Disneyland. So in Anaheim, California in the 50s and 60s, Disneyland was just was new. It was just, mm-hmm. just coming on. The Disneyland Hotel was there and there was a heliport. And so uh, the neighborhood kids and I got an early exposure to how fantasy can become reality. Because Disneyland was all about that. It's all about uh, taking your dreams and you pay at that time, kids would pay 50 cents and you go into the park and you see all, you're in another world. You see all the, <laughs> these, these incredible things. So I definitely was under the influence of entertainment. Uh, my parents weren't especially musical in any way, but I was really drawn to the radio more than anything else and love listening to records. Well, and correct me if I get this wrong, but I think I read that you want you w- were drawn to the music, but you were interested in supporting music as opposed to creating music. Did I get that correctly? Yeah, I didn't feel the pull to be a performer or to be on stage. In fact, the thought of it kind of just it, it didn't if it, it didn't feel pleasant at all. But I felt a strong pull to be kind of behind the scenes, uh, the, the, the running behind the scenes at Disneyland. The neighborhood kids and I would be interested in how did they get that to work? And I was one of those kids who was interested in how did they create such a fantastic world. So I think I was kind of born to be a recording engineer, someone on the other side of the control room glass who's receiving the great talents who are there in the control room and helping bring their vision to life. Now, there comes a time in every kid's life, most kids, uh, when that spark goes off and you go, this is the track that I'm on. This is where I'm going. Uh, and I know that you became a music engineer first and foremost. Let, let's start there. But how did that uh, decision happen for you? And when did you make up your mind that that was where you were headed? You know, it's just a calling. You just feel it. You just feel it down deep inside. And little children, I firmly believe this, know who they are. Adults are always trying to tell children, you're going to be this when you grow up. You're going to be that. And kids just, I think they have a sense of knowing. It's so mysterious how we know this. Who knows? But we sort of do. And I had that sense of knowing that, yeah, I want to be in music. No, I don't want to be a performer or a songwriter. I want to be someone who contributes and helps records get made, that my joy is in listening. And then later on in life, I I began hearing a second voice, a second calling, which was a calling to pursue the sciences, which happens to be the science of music perception and cognition, so related. But um, that voice hasn't steered me wrong. Now, I've been very fortunate. I showed up a couple of albums of Carol Channing. Carol and I became good friends. Oh, wow. Yes, and Carol used to say, uh, be careful what you set your mind upon because you will surely attain it. Not Mm -hmm. only did you set your mind on the music industry, but you also had a favorite, uh, well, he was one of your favorite uh, entertainers, uh, uh, song makers, Mm -hmm. and you got the opportunity at the er very beginning of your career to relocate 
and go and work for him. Mm -hmm. uh, the background should give a little bit of this away, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that was Prince. Um, yeah. uh, he was looking for a, an engineer. Um, and you've also said that he preferred to work with women. Yeah, I think for quite a number of reasons. He liked women. He liked their company. But also, when you think about, about Prince in the early 80s, he was a kid. He yes. was a kid. When I joined him, he was 24 years old when I joined him. He just turned 25, I think. And this kid was a multimillionaire. He had people working for him. He... uh he he had such pressures. You know, he was getting ready to make his sixth studio album. That was Purple Rain. But at the age of 25 years old, he's making his sixth studio album. He's making a semi-autobiographical movie about his life. And consider this. He's not like Michael Jackson working with Quincy Jones and Bruce Swedean, the great recording engineer and L.A.'s finest session musicians. No, no, no. Prince was working essentially on his own with just an engineer, no producer, no session musicians. He had his band, but they were all young people just like he was. Wendy Melvoin was only 18 years old when she joined his band. So we were a group of really young people. Uh, the last thing that Prince needed was anyone upsetting his apple cart. I mean, he, <laughs> the, the, the to, you, to mix my metaphors here, this apple cart was moving like a really fast train. And so we all needed to just fuel that train and keep it running. Women were probably less likely to want to do that macho posturing and go into competition with him as uh, maybe some members of, uh, of the time, his protege band, some members of his bands might've been want to do, some of the, the male members just be competitive. But women were less likely to do that. So if he had women around him who had the talents and the skills and could hang with him, he was happy. But you mentioned in an interview that he very much wanted to be the alpha male and uh, to be, uh, but uh, this was not a sexist thing. It was not a competitive thing. It was not a, a being in control thing. Am I correct on that? It was sort of about being in control, but it was because he was a visionary. If you think of someone like Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or someone who, who's got a brilliant idea and needs to make it work. This is this is not a, a kind of business that uh, is going to go forward by uh, by votes or in a democratic process. It's it's one man's vision. And Prince was um, what we know now is uh, Prince was what the neuroscientists would call hyper creative, meaning a couple of circuits in the brain are a little bit abnormally wired such that his creative ideas were constantly flowing. Constantly, 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 constantly. Now, most creative people go through dry spells. Uh, they'll get writer's block. That's natural. And Prince got that too. But in the years when I was with him in the early 80s, <laughs> there was no blockage. That, that train is running full bore. And so he, he needed people to uh, not slow the train down at that time. There's a great story that you told in an interview that I hope that you'll repeat here as well, um, that uh, when you were in the uh, recording studio one day uh, and everyone was clapping along and the receptionist came in 
And do you want to go there with this story? I'll let you pick it up. Because yeah. this response to this, I just, I was almost on the floor with it. It's very funny. Oh, um, so back in the olden days, you know, we had we had drum machines and things. By olden days, I mean the 80s. So we had drum machines. But if you wanted to put claps on a record, it's just simple. You just put up a microphone, you get a group of people in the room, and you play the tape. Everybody's got headphones, and you just clap on the two and the four, you know? One, clap, two, clap. It's pretty simple. So we needed hand claps, and there weren't enough people around. So Prince sent me to the front desk and said, can you call, if there's anybody, any warm bodies up there, you know, see if you can get, get them in here to, to clap around the mic. So this um, staffer came in, and I'm in the control room with the tape, and Prince and a couple of musicians and some others, including the staffer, were out in the studio, and they're all gathered around the mic, and we play the tape, and there they are, clapping on the two and four. She started off okay, but then all of a sudden her claps were just kind of on the offbeats. <laughs> it was really puzzling. Like, how can you not hear that? This is a dance record. It's so easy. Okay, well, nobody said anything. You know, we just rolled back, started again punched in. She started off okay. And then she just got completely off time. And Prince just, well, he didn't even have to signal to me. Stop the tape. He didn't say a word. He just raised his arm and pointed at the door. <laughs> oh my God. So, I, I would have given anything <laughs> in that moment. But I was thinking about this as I was hearing you tell this story also. Um, when I think of the song Happy Birthday, hmm. um, it's everybody knows it, everybody sings it, but no matter when, where, and how, unless it's a very rare occasion, everyone picks a different key to sing that song. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think it's because most people don't sing. Uh, which is a bit of a shame because in other societies and cultures, everybody sings. It would be strange to not sing. But here we tend to think that singing is for the professionals. And so when there's an occasion where we have to sing, uh, sometimes we're using muscles that aren't normally used. So we're going to go. It's just like imagine ice skating. If you don't normally ice skate, you're going you're gonna to hang kind of close to the edge, you know, where the that barrier is. So you've got something to cling to. And I think it's the same with, with singing. If you don't sing a lot, you're just going to pick the most natural key for your voice. It, well, I want to go back to the connection with you and Prince because uh, he placed an ad that he was looking uh, for someone, or is that how you found out originally? Did someone tell you about this? Obviously you already were already an engineer at this point. Uh, but this was a big break for you. Right, yeah. He didn't place an ad so much as tell his management to find him a technician. So uh, this was before I was a recording engineer. I got my start in the business in 1978 in Hollywood uh, working as an audio technician. You know, mm -hmm. it's a very male-dominated profession, the music business. But, boy, you should have seen it in 1978. You just didn't see women in the technical roles. Uh, but if you're a repair technician, the tape machine, the console doesn't care whether or not you got a Y chromosome. If it needs to be repaired, you just get in there and you repair it. So <laughs> that was a door that was open to me. So I was working as a technician for the artists uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash, at their recording studio. Wow. 
And uh, I heard through the professional grapevine that Prince was looking for a technician. And as soon as I heard that, I knew, well, he can call off the search because I'm getting that job. The job. Yeah. And once, uh, what was that first meeting like? And obviously you relocated. I, I mean, was that an easy transition for you? Oh, it took a bit of courage. You know, I was leaving everyone I'd ever known. I was born and raised in California, so I didn't know anyone outside of California to move to Minneapolis. I would know nobody, but this was my favorite artist in the world. And there's no way I'm saying no to that job. There's no way. This was a dream job. I'm just going to go and see how far I get. So, yeah, I I went. And um, he was, throughout his whole life, a strong personality and a difficult personality because he was cut from such a rare piece of cloth. Mm -hmm. There weren't many other people like him. He was well aware of that. And he had created around him a certain veil. I think all celebrities do that veil that protects your artistry from intrusion. So if your creativity is coming from, the core of your psyche, you can't give that away. You need that psyche in order to create. You need access to your own daydreams and your fantasies and your private world in your head. But if you're a megastar like he was in the 80s, an awful lot of light is being shown on you to examine that psyche. So uh, not all artists do this, but the smart ones do. The smart ones construct a psychic barrier to help preserve that which is most precious to them. So uh, Prince didn't make small talk. He wasn't a conversationalist. He, he, he was difficult in that regard. But my very first introduction to him was after I'd been his employee for about a week. So he uh, lived in Chanhassen, Minnesota, which is where he died. It's where Paisley Park Studios is. Anyway, there was a, a home studio in a, the downstairs bedroom in his home in Chanhassen. And I was in there working for a week to get all his gear up and running. And finally, I was finished working. And so he came down the stairs uh, he was up above. I could hear him rehearsing with Vanity Six. They were rehearsing for the Purple Rain movie. But he came downstairs and he didn't even say hello or I'm Prince or anything. He just he didn't he just started right in asking me questions and um I answered his questions and then he said, Okay. And he said something like, you know, come back tomorrow at 10 or something like that. And he turned around to leave. And my instincts just told me, Oh no, 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 we can't let it start like this. I've just moved 2,300 miles. I've left everyone I know. I left a good job to come work for him. And there's no way that I'm going to let it start like this. We've got to establish something between us, a starting point that we can build on. And it was just instinct. I wasn't thinking all this consciously, but my instinct told me, don't let him go. So he turned to walk up the stairs and I, and I cut him off. I said, excuse me, Prince. He turned back around and I said, um, I'm Susan Rogers. I, st I stuck my hand out to shake hands with him. And he got this look on his face that I would see many times over the next few years. Like It's a look like he's amused. He, he thinks it might be rude to laugh. So he, almost, he doesn't want to laugh at me, but he's kind of holding back laughter. And he was pleased. And he went, I'm Prince. And he stuck his hand out and we shook, <laughs> we shook hands and we kind of did a little bow, like very formal. Yes. <laughs> and uh, and that was that and that was and when 
Now, I, I'm going to assume, I mean, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm not thinking that he was being rude in that moment, that he was just so caught up that's in how, what yeah. he was doing. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's that's how he navigated the world as someone who uh, was not about to step off of his track to make anyone else's life easier. So Susan, once you acclimated yourself, uh, introducing yourself, letting him know who you were and that you were there, what was it that you brought to the table to Prince? Took me a while. Took him a while for us both to figure that out. because I, I was, I mean, this is all so new to me. And there was so much new stuff I had to learn. And Prince transitioned me from the technician role into the engineering role. So in addition to learning to work for this guy, I'm, I'm learning to engineer, really engineer and make records. So, and he's making a movie and he's getting ready for a tour. And it was so much new stuff to learn. But uh, one of the things I, I, I can be counted on to bring is uh, I'll always have energy. Mm-hmm. always have energy. And I brought an attitude of no jobs too big, no jobs too small. I'll do the most menial task. And if you ask me to do something that's way, way over my head, I'll get as far as I can. So I I, I, I worked really, really hard. And he recognized that, you know, that full can of whoop ass. Mm-hmm. And on the, uh, on the Purple Rain album and the thank you credits, he was always generous about that. But he thanked me for my energy. I think uh, he appreciated that. Uh, he worked so hard and I, I wanted to, um, you know, hold my own. I love that. Uh, I'm all about celebrating artists and their body of worth. And it's, it's, it's his body of worth of what he created in the world. What is the one lesson above all others, if the, you could pick one, that he you learned from him, that he instilled in you, that you have carried through every aspect of your life and the other careers, and I do say careers, that you've had as you've moved on? I can't say that I learned it from him, but I tried to emulate him, and that was um, courage. He was perhaps the most courageous person, the most courageous person I've ever known, because um, when you consider this, in the 80s, the three biggest stars in pop music in the States were Prince, Madonna, and Michael Jackson. Madonna and Michael Jackson had teams of people who were writing and playing and producing and engineering and mixing and lifting them up to get them to the top of those pop charts. Not that they're not talented. Of course they are. But they did this work. They accomplished these feats as part of a very experienced team. Prince got to the same place they got to, essentially, on his own. Of course, he had a wonderful band, The Revolution, but Mm -hmm. they weren't L.A. session musicians. He didn't have a producer. He didn't have writers all on his own when i think about but was that a was that a, a conscious choice that he was making yeah he he kind of, it, it was both conscious and it was it was sort of the path he was on uh he um he wasn't born into a show business family the way michael jackson was nor did he have a fame at any price mentality which i think probably fair to say that Madonna did. She wanted to be famous. Uh, He was neither one of those things. So uh, he he went his own way. The reason I say he's courageous is 
when I think about the decisions he had to make on a daily basis, all alone, that took guts. That took guts. We see the courageousness, but was he ambitious as well? Oh, tremendously. Of course you would be. Of course you would be. You know, when you're you're young... Uh, do you understand what I'm asking with that? I mean, when I think of someone as being ambitious, who needs to get to the next level at all cost, and, you know, and obviously he's going to bring everyone with him that are part of, you mentioned that he didn't have the teams like the others did, but he had a team. He had oh. two, he had his band, he had all of these people around him, not on the level that uh, Michael Jackson and Madonna did. Mm. But as he was moving forward, Did you all feel that you were in this collective move together? Yeah, we did. Um, But it's interesting. Uh, I want to go back to a clause you used a moment ago, ambitious at all costs. I don't think he would have paid any price. I don't think he was desperate. I I never got that that impression. I think Prince was self-aware enough to recognize that he was exceptionally creative. And he worked so unbelievably hard to be so facile, so virtuoso on so many different instruments. The hours he put in on piano and guitar and voice and drums and all the things that he played, the lonely hours that he spent writing. Wow. He knew he he had it. He knew he was, as, as they might say in poker, he knew he was holding. So why not play that hand? I, I I don't I, I I never got the impression that it was I am going to be famous no matter what I think the 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 thought was I got a lot I, I've I've got a lot a lot to offer a lot to give and I'm going to make damn sure I I don't like to use the the term gift because I don't know if these are gifts but I'm going to use these assets that I have until I've spent every last penny. Because I've got I, I them. them gifts. They, I, I do mm. them gifts. Uh, then you uh, started to branch out as a producer. Um, how did that transition happen in your career? Mm. So if you're an experienced recording engineer and you've made a lot of records, sometimes the label is going to come to you and they say, we've got this band and they insist on producing themselves. And we said there's got to be a compromise Uh, we won't let you produce yourself but uh, if you bring in an experienced engineer let that engineer co-produce with you so you do that a few times and co-production is (laughs) it's like having two directors on a movie Uh, it's two people driving a car it's it's awkward most of the time Mm -hmm. so um, what you do is after a while you say no no I want full production credit and so and so that's how it happened and then you become a neuroscientist Mm. Uh, was this something that was always in the back of your mind or was it forefront in your mind? Where was it? And how did that transition take place? Yeah, I began, uh, you know, as I'm, as I'm around 40 in my early forties, I began um, getting that second calling. I just, that sense that, wow, I think I'd really love to go to college. I think I'd really love to have a life of a scientist to explore the natural world and 
solve those kinds of problems. Now, by the time I was 44, 45 years old, I had done everything in the music business and then some. I had had a hit record as a producer. I had, you know, worked with my favorite artist. I had had hit records as a mixer and an engineer and exceeded my wildest dreams. So it just felt like, you know, maybe there's this other dream. And just maybe I want to see if I can make it happen. I'm just going to see how far I get. And um, turns out in order to be a scientist, you, you kind of have to go for the full Monty. You have to get the full eight years of college and get that PhD so you can do the work. Uh, so I did that. I got that PhD. Now, were you always thinking about meshing these two worlds together? It seems to me, and uh, again, correct me if I'm wrong, that you have created this incredible niche for yourself. Uh, did this exist prior or is this just something new that you've created and, and which is going to bring us to your book and mm. getting into how we listen to music and how we process it and experience it? Yeah, I didn't, um, I didn't think that I would be studying music perception and cognition. I thought I would be leaving music behind, if I'm being honest. I was interested in the problem of consciousness, but I had a, a wonderful advisor when I was an undergrad, and he was an older professor, and he said to me, you know, by the time you get your PhD, you're going to be 52 years old, and it's going to be a very short science career. And the topic you're interested in, consciousness, is one of the most complex ones there is. You'd be doing yourself a favor if you stuck with what you know and explore this field of music perception and cognition. If it hadn't been for him, I I, I don't think I, I I wouldn't have taken that I wouldn't have known that good advice. But yeah, I took his advice, and it, it turned out uh, to be a wonderful marriage of working in the arts. The arts is the humanities, and that's where we're all striving for a unique individual expression of what it means to be human, a song or a story or a play or a book or whatever, unique ideas of what it means to be human. And then you get into the sciences and you're taught we're all working from our individual perspectives back toward the center of what it means to be human. This is what's true of all brains, of all people. So I was on the same journey, it turned out, but just in the opposite direction. And that was um, just utterly, utterly uh, thrilling and um, mind-blowing. I, I can't even imagine. Uh, the, these thought processes that come from this book, was this something that you had even thought about prior in your other careers leading to this point? Yeah, I think so. So um, I started, as I mentioned, in music in 1978. And um, a common thread that goes through my whole life is uh, the hours of conversations with people about the question of what's music? What is it? How does it work? What is it? And I've had those conversations with people from kids who were stoned at parties, you know, back in the late 70s and early 80s, you know, just hanging around and never, just, you know, flights of fancy, to serious musicians, some of them very famous, some of them unknown but incredibly talented, some neither talented nor known. But he's 
countless, countless conversations on what music is. That mystery is always there. Then in the sciences, same thing, having these conversations, but with scientists, brain scientists, about what is what is actually going on? And then uh, getting my PhD and coming to Berklee College of Music in Boston, 2008, and talking with um, our beautiful students, these young people who want a career in music very, very badly. And they're smart enough to know how hard that's going to be, but they're not jaded. They're not cynical. They're just going to, they're talented and they're just going to try. So for 45 years, I've been having conversations about what music is and how it works and uh, still talking about it. And thank God for that. Uh, you, I mean, we were talking about a, a test where teenagers mostly are asked, how do you uh, perceive or see yourself and how do others see you? Hmm. And that a lot of teenagers, uh, well, mo a lot of people, regardless of where you are in life, uh, our identities sometimes are based on how others perceive us. Um, I want to—I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit. If there was a soundtrack to your life, what would that soundtrack sound like or be? And do you think that other people who know you would also be hearing the same soundtrack? That is a great question. Because I know how I'd like to be perceived. All of us do. So you have this notion of, yeah, this is the music of me. And that's a term that I use in the book a lot because it feels right. When you hear something that feels just perfect for you, you feel like this is the music of me. So I'd like to say that the music of me is the music I love the best. And that would be Al Green and Sly Stone. And it would be the jazz music that I love. It would be Bud Powell. It would be the guitar gods that I love, Jimi Hendrix and Keith Richards and Jimmy Page and all the great musicians, the vocalists that I adore, Ella Fitzgerald, Frank Sinatra. I mean, wow. I'd like to say that's the music of me. But if someone else were to look at me and say, oh, no, no, you're not that at all. <laughs> this is the music of you. They might choose something that... Uh, in their mind, uh, expresses the way I am in the world. And I would have no way of knowing what that is. It's very interesting. And I was, uh, and since I started reading this book, um, and I was at a show on uh, uh, Sunday afternoon, uh, I am processing it. I think processing is the right word. Um, it, it differently. Um, you talk about listening versus hearing. Do you want to talk about that for a moment? Right. Yeah. Uh, it is It is interesting and it's a subtle difference, but it's the beauty of the English language. So when we're processing an audio signal, um, well, let's just say music. Let's not make it that general. Let's say when we're hearing music, let's say someone's playing a, a piece of music for you for the very first time. You've never heard this record before. And uh, what you're going to do is your brain is going to scan its features. Uh, the dimensions that I talk about in the book. You're going to scan its melody and its lyrics, its rhythm, its timbre and sound design. You're going to scan its style. Um, you're going to scan the performances. How do the performances strike you? Do you like this genre of music? So you're going to scan all these things. And what your brain is doing is looking for a treat. It's looking for, is there anything in this particular record that speaks loudly to me? 
that I love. And if it doesn't find a treat, you're likely to say to your friend, yeah, it's good. I like it. And you're never going to go buy that record or you're never going to go add it to your playlist. You like it. You did your surface processing. You didn't find a treat. It's good. You cognitively appraise it. Yeah, it's fine. But should you be scanning that novel record and happen to find your scanning brain happens to find a treat, which might be a groove that you love. It might be a lyric that makes you swoon, a melody that makes you weak in the knees. If you find that treat, what happens is you go deeper into your brain and you activate a network called the default network. The default network where these structures that are all connected together and these structures have to do with our self-image, self-awareness, self-consciousness. And when you hear a record you love, that default network lights up and you go into your own head and it becomes, this record becomes the music of you. So you're going to move from liking, which is just a hedonistic response. I like it. It's good. To wanting. Mm -hmm. That wanting is what's going to make you feel like, I need this. I must have this in my life. It's solving a problem for me. It's being a good companion. It's, it's, helping to forge my self-identity. You mentioned the records that you love, Carol Channing. Mm -hmm. There were elements in that record that you, the word I like to use is recognized. Mm -hmm. You recognized yourself in those records. And you said, this is me. Mm -hmm. It's such a beautiful thing when that happens. Well, I, you know, there are certain songs that, I, I hear and I immediately, I can burst into tears as soon as I mm -hmm. hear the opening strains of a certain song. I mean, there are endorphins that just go through me. Mm -hmm. uh, there, uh, I mean, I remember, for example, I loved Captain and Tennille in the 70s mm -hmm. and I still do. Uh, and I remember exactly where I was the first time I heard Love Will Keep Us Together. I know where I was. I know exactly what was going on. And I left there and I went rushing to the record store. Remember those? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I went rushing to it to get anything I could get with uh, of Captain Antonio. And there are certain singers that we are drawn to. I'm a singer myself. So I was thinking about this again, reading the book, why certain singers uh, that don't create, uh, write their own music, for example, cabaret singers, I'm very involved in the cabaret community in New York, the the choices that uh, singers make in terms of the uh, songs they pick and the arc of the show, uh, how the show, uh, everything unfolds. One of the other things that you talk about in the book that I really want to really delve into for a moment, um, you talk about authenticity. Mm -hmm. And uh, you... Early on in the book, uh, there's a whole section um, about a group that I did not know anything about. Mm -hmm. I know who I'm about to pull up. Uh, but I went out and started listening to their music. Uh, and here they are. <laughs> uh, and, but you talk about, regardless, and everyone who's watching, if you haven't heard them, go and listen to them. Uh, because what we're about to talk about will probably make a little bit more sense to you. But whether you like them or not, you talk about their authenticity. Yes. 
Yeah, the Shags were three sisters, Betty, Helen, and Dorothy Wigan, and they lived in New Hampshire, rural New Hampshire, in the 1960s, and their father um, believed that they were destined for musical greatness. Now, there was no one in that family that was musical at all, but the, the dad believed what his mother had told him, that his daughters would form a mighty band and their music would ring across the land, so dad said, he, you know, I've got to make fate come true. So he pulled his three daughters out of school, teenage girls, pulled them out of school and gave them musical instruments, drums, bass, and guitar, and basically locked them up in the house. It's a little bit of a Rapunzel kind of story. Locked them up in the house and said, you will learn to play music and you'll write your own songs and you'll learn to sing them. So these three girls cut off from the world. It wasn't much of a world to begin with in rural New Hampshire in the 1960s. It was a pretty small world, but now they're even further cut off from it, had to learn to play. And they didn't quite get over the finish line. <laughs> they didn't quite learn how to tune their instruments or how to play. But when they had written a dozen or so songs, dad said, let's get them down to a recording studio in Boston and let's get them captured on tape. So what you hear on this, on this priceless record there's three young people communicating. They're letting you know, this is, this is what my world looks like. They are to music what a child's finger painting, or a child's drawing, a toddler's drawing is to art. It's not going to go in a museum. It has no technique whatsoever. But when you look at a child's little drawing of mom and dad in the house. They're saying, this is my world. This is, this is, this is my world. They're communicating through line and color and form. And likewise with the shags, they're communicating through melodies and rhythms such as they are. So what they illustrate for us, us being people in the music business is that's what it's supposed to feel like. When you're on that microphone, you shouldn't be worried about stardom or how much money you're going to get or how many likes you're going to get. When you're on that microphone, your job is to communicate something that's inside you. So we can listen to the shags and they are stripped of all technique. There's nothing there. Mm -hmm. But what you hear is their intentionality, and it's pure and raw. My friend Tommy always says something that's similar to a quote you had at the beginning of the program. Tommy says, uh, well, he says a lot of things. One of the things he says is anything you do a lot, you get good at. So be careful what you do a lot. <laughs> and, and another thing he says. But they, is, but they didn't grow in, uh, mm -hmm. am, I, am I correct? They, mm -hmm. they yeah. remain the same as far as their... Uh, for lack of a better term, musicality was. Concerned. Yeah, that that quote of Tommy's just uh, popped into my head. But his other quote, which does apply to the shags, is uh, the wrong note played with gusto always sounds better than the right note played timidly. They play with gusto. And I'll take that any day over the perfect performance that's timid and shy and withholding and private and non-communicative. So we talk about the authenticity of the artist on stage and the musicality or music that they're creating. Um, now I want to go to the other side and talk about the audience mm -hmm. because you also say there, there are three types of audiences. Uh, 
do you want to elaborate on that? Oh, uh, yes. Yes, or I can go with it. Or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, well, I'll share. Um, years ago, I worked with the aforementioned Tommy, and his musical partner was Greg Kirsten. And Greg has been hugely successful these days as a record producer. He produced uh, Adele's most recent albums. He's, he won the Grammy for Producer of the Year a couple of years in a row. And he works with... Uh, a lot of superstars. Anyway, this was back in the 90s when Greg was just a kid. And Tommy and Greg and I were sitting around the studio and we were talking about who has worn the Triple Crown the longest. Now, in the music business, the Triple Crown refers to the three audiences that potentially can like your work. There's the general public. That's the audience we're most familiar with. Then there's the music critics and the scholars and then there's the third audience, which is your peers, other musicians. The reason the Venn diagram of these three audiences has only partial overlap is because they're all listening for a different thing. Mm-hmm. So other musicians are looking to be impressed. Are you doing something that they or their friends could do? If so, yeah, they're not going to think you're all that great. You got to really knock them out with your virtuosity. The critics and scholars are looking for an idea whose time has come. Is this ahead of its time, behind its time? Is this worthy of this current year? And then the third audience being the public, they uh, don't have a horse in the race. They, they just want a, you know, a, a fun pop tune that makes them feel good. So the triple crown refers to that Venn diagram where all three of those audiences overlap and you're a hit with all three audiences. It's extremely difficult to hit. Prince hit it for one album. He hit it for Purple Rain, that's for sure. The public loved it. It was number one for 24 weeks. The critics and scholars praised it, and other musicians were like, respect. Uh, We were asking ourselves who'd worn that crown the longest, and I think uh, Greg came up with the right answer when he said Duke Ellington. Duke Ellington. Duke Ellington wore the triple crown probably longer than just about anyone else. Maybe Frank Sinatra. That's yeah. amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Judy Garland said that the longevity of a career, uh, you would think that it would get easier. It gets tougher because the audiences are expecting more of you. I mean, uh, you also talk in the book about uh, the way that we process music or listen to music. And as our lives go on, uh, a certain song that I listened to when I was in high school, uh, and I hear it now, it evokes completely different memories. Um, one of the songs that you mentioned is Tammy Wynette's D-I-V-O-R-C-E, mm-hmm. uh, Divorce. Um, a kid singing that song um, or hearing that song uh, may think nothing of it. You know, I have a friend and she said when she was a little girl, she used to get up at parties. And she says, I know this is inappropriate, but she would get up and sing Love for Sale. Uh, <laughs> you know, and now she realizes that maybe her parents should have pulled her aside and said, I don't think you should be singing that song. But she didn't know what she was singing. Innocent. It, she was innocent. And it was the musicality of what that song sounded like and everything that was resonating so with her. So as we get older, uh, as we go through life uh, events happen, we are processing everything different. We are experiencing it different. But there's something to be said, once again, about the audiences coming together in a collective group of people 
um, Carol Channing once again, she said, in order for a show to succeed, you need people from different walks of life. You need uh, nurses and you need housewives and you need firemen and you need policemen all sitting in the collective dark to watch a show or an event happening. But music is very different from that. Yeah, it is. Music is um, shorter, for one thing. A play or a musical is going to last for a couple of hours, whereas a pop song is three minutes long. Uh, music has a, a, a kind of a shorter self-life for those reasons that you mentioned. Um, it, uh, you, you outgrow certain pieces of music, and a new generation is unlikely to pick up on them. I don't think kids these days are going to be running out to find the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or... <laughs> the Beach Boys, because that music doesn't speak to them. So these careers are short. Something you said earlier about how it gets harder for artists as they get a little bit older is because uh, the first record you make, the first thing you do of any import importance is a point. It's just a data point. Anything else that you do after that is a direction. So your first work exists apropos of nothing. And it's regarded apropos of nothing. It just plopped on the scene and there it is. But anything you do after that is now part of the arc of your career. And it's going to be judged in reference to where you began and where they thought you were going to go. So it's much easier to disappoint on your subsequent albums than it is on your first album. I, I certainly saw that with Prince. He, um, I was with him in his 20s and, and I left just after he, or just around the time he turned 30, I guess it was, maybe just after. And music, popular music changes so fast that if you have a five year run, you're pretty much done because styles are going to change so drastically that now you have to kind of go underground and wait until you can pop back up and uh, perhaps be considered a legacy artist. Um, Hip-hop came along in the late 80s, and hip-hop was there before, but it really dominated by the late 80s. The funk dance stuff that Prince was doing and Michael Jackson and Madonna is like, no, 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 no. Um, the next generation had moved on from there. It's tough business. Well, I want to talk about two other aspects of uh, going back to the idea of the shags, for example. Mm. Um, Florence Foster Jenkins, who was opera singer or des desired to be an opera singer, who really audiences thought of as a joke, but they went to see her concert selling out, Carnegie Hall, doing all those. And the other side of that in the pop world was, if you may remember her, was Mrs. Miller. And Mrs. Miller... It, uh, you know, her, I actually have a Mrs. Her CD. Oh, wow. And she was always a beat behind the music. <laughs> and yet, uh, it, it, I mean, and what was very interesting about her is she came along at a time with what you would have thought that she would have been resonating with songs from uh, an earlier generation. She was singing pop songs. She was singing the Beatles. She was singing Petula Clark. She was doing the Supremes. And she was getting uh, television play and airplay because of the absurdity of what she was creating out there. Mm. But audiences were flocking to it. 
Yeah, there have always been artists like that. I, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking of Tiny Tim. I read a biography of Tiny Tim. Uh, he, he was actually quite brilliant. He, he was a great historian of early uh, ragtime era, 1920s and so era music. And uh, he was genuinely talented. He was a real odd duck. But he was so sincere in his presentation that he would appear on the tonight show and do television appearances and the audience would laugh at him. But down deep inside, most audience members could recognize, yeah, but this is an artist. He's not trying to be something he isn't. He's, I think, I believe this, this quote is attributed to Thelonious Monk. Thelonious Monk said, the genius is the man who is most like himself. Tiny Tim was most like himself well, that goes as, back as Mrs. Miller. Yeah. Uh, that goes right back to the authenticity. I, I think with all of these artists that we've mentioned, uh, the Shags, uh, and for all the artists that are watching now, uh, the Shags, Florence Foster Jenkins, Tiny Tim, uh, Mrs. Miller, they all believed that they were the best at their craft. They believed in the, I, I, I'm thinking about the shags now because that's the one I know the best. But uh, there was a funny anecdote from the recording engineers who were present there at the recording of their first album. I mean, the recording engineers were just rolling on the floor laughing because this music was just awful. But the girls would stop all of a sudden in the middle of a song. And so the engineers asked their dad, why'd they stop? And the dad would say, because they made a mistake. And the engineers are thinking, how could you tell? But again, an intentionality, the child who draws a house and a dog and the mom and dad didn't do it very well, but we can see what the child tried to do. It's just pure as daylight. And uh, that's that, that can sometimes be more bare when uh, technique is, shall we say, not an obstacle to <laughs> communication. Um, I want to ask, um, now that this book is completed and it's in our hands, what's the one thing that has surprised you the most about yourself when it comes to listening or hearing music since you've written this book? I don't know if it's much of a surprise but since writing the book, I'm even more aware <laughs> of how deep I go into my own psyche with listening for pleasure. You know, it's pretty hard for a trained record maker to have music on in the background because you're trained to be paying attention when it's playing. It's, it's pretty hard. It was, I, I can only do the simplest type of work if I've got music on in, in the background because there's not much else I can concentrate on. But uh, over time, our auditory cortex, our listening profile gets more and more honed and fine-tuned with all our musical love experiences. So now that I'm 66 years old, I'm so quick to recognize what I love. I know my brain knows right where those treats are. It knows those treats where it, when it finds them. And I think, I guess I had a surprise today when I was focusing on my taxes and I was pulled away by the Artie Shaw band thinking, what was going on in the studio that day? Those guys just aren't into it. You know, they're just, they're phoning it in. It's, you get so 
with with time you get your 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 auditory listening brain gets so finely tuned that you, you are now completing the circle in a very effortless way the circle that is music music is on output the listener is on input and that makes a whole well, I think it's wonderful that you can work on your taxes and be hearing music at the same time <laughs> and focused on that. Uh, I mean, I find that as I'm listening to music a lot, that as a singer, that I there are certain instruments I can isolate the, a specific instrument or a certain player mm -hmm. and hone in on what they are bringing to the table. Uh, Susan, I can't believe that this hour has flown. Mm -hmm. I hope that you'll come back at another time. Thank you. Uh, when your next book comes out and the one after that and the one after that. Uh, so uh, thank you for writing this incredible book. Uh, this is what it sounds like, folks, and everyone get it. I'm going to give my closing remarks and then I'm going to turn it over to you and you will have the final word today. Okay. About anything that we've talked about that you want to build upon, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any message that you want to leave everyone with today. Um, I, uh, every day, I, and don't worry about how to end the show, when you say goodbye, the final credits will roll. Mm. Um, so I always, those who watch the show know, and thank you all for being here today, uh, that I choose a word each day, and I focus on that word uh, throughout the day. And the word that I chose today is unity. And I was thinking about the unifying force of how music brings us together. Uh, earlier, uh, well, this past year, uh, I went to see a concert at Joe's Pub here in New York, and uh, it was uh, a disco divas. Uh, <laughs> it was, uh, but the audience was on its feet. People were dancing at their tables. It was this visceral experience of all of us coming together in this incredible moment. And one of the artists, uh, Martha Wash, she actually said, with all the problems that are going out in the world right now, in here, for this hour and a half that we're all together, we're all in this collection of just enjoying the music, enjoying each other, and enjoying what we all bring to the table. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is the, again, unifying experience that music has. Um, it's one thing to be alone in your room listening to a great song or a great piece of music, uh, but when you are in a cabaret room or the theater, or a concert hall. Um, next time, be aware of how everyone else is responding to the music as well, because there's a collective energy that's going through that room. And I've been thinking a lot about that. Uh, and uh, again, I don't think that I will ever experience music the same way again, thanks to you, Susan. And <laughs> that is a great compliment to you. Um, it's just an incredible read and, uh, there are so many wonderful anecdotes in the book and we learn, uh, uh, you know, you're about Sinatra and other, uh, great singers and musicians and, uh, what it is that they each had authentically making them themselves. And that's what this world needs a lot more of authenticity and everybody listening and being aware and being in the moment. As you all know, I end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. Uh, pick up the phone and call a friend that you haven't spoken to in a while. Tell them about this book. 
buy two copies of this book. Take <laughs> one for yourself and send one to that friend that you're going to uh -huh. talk to tonight. Uh, that's my wish for everybody who's watching tonight's show. And please share this with your friends. Leave a comment on uh, YouTube. Uh, let me know uh, what you think of tonight's show. And please uh, keep the music flowing and keep this going out there. I have a dear friend. He says, we're all in the same storm, but we're not in the same boat. And I say, we're all in different size boats. Some are in canoes, some are in yachts, some are in sailboats, uh, some are on cruise ships, some are pushing uh, tugboats right upstream. It doesn't matter what size boat you're on tonight. Just make sure you have a skipper by your side. Mm -hmm. And with that, I'm going to leave <laughs> And Susan, I'm turning it over to you. And again, thank you for being here today. It's been Richard, oh, thank you. Richard, I can't thank you enough. You are a delightful interviewer. Uh, it was so easy to talk to you. And I enjoyed this very, very much. So the two take-home lessons in the book are, one, never be a music snob. And the corollary of that is never be embarrassed of your musical taste. The music of you, the music that you love, is a reflection of who you are. And the music that you love is music that works for you. Just like the clothes that you wear and the food that you eat. It's a personal choice. So be proud of the music in your life. Or don't put down others for the music in their lives. And the other thing is that falling in love with a record is like falling in love with a person. They're not perfect. They're perfect for you. They may have their flaws. Don't expect others to love the music that you love as much as you love it any more than you'd expect others to love your romantic partner in the same way that you do. They're perfect for you. You and music, many pieces of music, form a perfect match. And that's all that matters. So thank you very much. Have a good night and enjoy your music. Bye.